podcast one production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. I'm in New Zealand for this one, on the North Island's beautiful Coromandel Peninsula. You could be forgiven for thinking what kind of motoring or motorsport event takes place there. Well, each year, for nearly a decade now, there's been a Goodwood-style meeting called the Leadfoot Festival. Competitors race all kinds of machines up a long driveway, a hill climb, and it attracts some fantastic cars, bikes and big names like Paul Radisic, the quietly spoken former touring car racer who became a household name during the famed two-litre super touring era. He won the World Cup not once, but twice. His nephew now races, and Paul's dad competed too. The family's love for it was a huge influence. It was all about family to start with, because who was going to fix the car and who was going to get it out there and, you know, uh, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, my, my dad being Formula 5, you know, former Formula 5000 driver and touring car driver, I mean, you know, we used to go on picnics to Bay Park rather than going to the beach, you know, and Frank had a, a Mazda rotary and a, and a March 72 single-seater and, and at the age of 8 and 10 I was out round Bay Park pounding around this 300-horsepower monster of a thing, you know, so it, I had no option. I was always going to go motor racing. You know, our whole family, if we didn't sell cars, we fixed them or race them, you know, so, uh, you know, the interest was there and, and the support. Um, you know, the typical motor racing family put everything on the line. Family went, had the family business, went bankrupt twice just to keep me, keep me, the, the end of the day to keep me going. And um, when I think back, uh, you know, think back now, I mean, yeah, tough, tough times, you know, but hey, I managed to, to keep it going. He recovered, family recovered, and, uh, you know, he, he got to a stage where he said, okay, Paul, I can't, I really can't help you anymore. You've, I've got to rebuild finances and you know and, and you've got to go and do it yourself and I think in, in some ways that was that was probably the best thing he could have done for me and you know and, and I was determined to be to have a, a motor racing career and you know and I started chasing I said look I'm not going to find the money so I'm going to find the people that do the teams that do the car owners and and I said about hitting the world to to do that and that's that's how I managed to keep going. That's remarkable, the, the financial stress that would have caused on the family and, and things like that. Many people would just throw the towel in, but to, to do that twice and to, to keep at it, mate, that's uh, for all of you to stay passionate about it is mm. tremendous. Yeah, look, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, that's, I guess, the motor racing drug, you know, and it's, uh, it, it's look, yeah, the other side, it can cripple a lot of people, but um, you know, you, you, we, we know we're able to, to get through it and, and recover and and keep going. And you know, everybody today's uh, you know is, is great. So yeah, it's it, that's you know, I guess it's w- what passion can do. You know, and uh, I guess there's a fine line of between there's a fine line between getting somewhere and not getting somewhere. You know, there's so been so many brilliant young drivers particularly from New Zealand that that haven't been able to make that next step because of those 
financial restraints. You know, at some point you have to say enough's enough and I, I've got to, you know, I've got to join the real world and get a real job. And luckily for me, I didn't want to get a real job. <laughs> and uh, and I just kept at it and at it and at it. And when I think back now, I think, Jesus, how, how you know, I mean, it was a, it was a 20, nearly a 20-year um, uh, apprenticeship before I had a full-time career and, and made it on the international scene. So, you know, it was, it was yeah, tough going, you know, but that, that's, I guess that's what makes you what you are, you know, today. In addition to your dad, I mean, New Zealand has had its share of legendary drivers over the, over the time, you know, the late Bruce McLaren, uh, Denny Holm, Chris Amon. I mean, the mm. list is... There's plenty of them. In addition to your dad, were there other influences like them? Were there guys that were sort of a source of inspiration in some respects? Well, I think, you know, at that stage, I mean, they were at the top of the career when I was quite young. Yes. But um, just the, yeah, I mean, those three guys kept New Zealand motorsport, you know, in lights for, Jesus, decades, didn't they? And and even today, it's still inspiring people, you know, with Bruce McLaren, what he did, and and Denny. I think Denny, for me, I I had the opportunity to race with him twice, and uh, he helped me initially to try and find funding um, to career to, to for me to get to Formula Three. So the beer had quite a quite a bit to do, and I had a bit to, to do with him as well. And uh, you know, he was a, he was a grumpy guy, but underneath it, he was he had a heart of gold. And uh, you know, he, he was really as far as you know, my inspiration was was my dad. But 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 Denny being a world champion and and uh, and 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 having uh, him stand behind me at the, you know, my early career. Was uh, was was awesome. He died at, at Bathurst quite sadly. Did that mm. did that affect you at the time? What did you? I mean, what were the the feelings at the time? Oh, it was dev- devastating. You know, it was. Uh, uh, I, I guess we all consult ourselves to say, well, he went the way that he would have liked to have gone, but that's probably not true. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it affected it affected everybody. You know, and and for sure, I mean, my, my memories with him and spending time at with him and Greta at uh, you know Lake Rotowiti and and you know. Can-Am boat that he had and all the toys that, you know, was, yeah, it was, of course, really sad and, and uh, but, but, you know, we, we managed to deal with it. This is a bit of a long-winded tale and I don't know if I have the details right, so you might have to correct me here. In 2006, you did a celebrity speedway event with Steve Williams, former caddy for Tiger Woods, legendary New Zealand sportsman, Greg Murphy took part, among others. Was that kind of like six degrees of separation because I think you may have learnt some of your early driving on the Williams family driveway in, in Auckland in a, in a Fiat or something? Is there, is, there, is there any truth to that story or is that not quite right? Well, um, it's possible. It's too far. I can't remember. I meant my first car was a Fiat 500 Bambina wow. and it was the only car I could see over the steering wheel. <laughs> And, how, and, how much? Where did you find it? Where did you get it? <laughs> I was one of Frank's car, cars from the car yard, you know. And we used to, um, I, it's possible with Steve Williams' driveway, but I do remember we, we had a workshop. Frank had a, a garage, and every Friday night they'd clean the floors with kerosene, and then they'd just go away and leave it. So when it was empty, I'd get this little bambina in the in the indoor workshop, and I'd be doing these 360s around, around, around inside the, inside the workshop. So when they come, all, all the black tyre marks were... So, Who did this? Yeah, yeah, of course they didn't. They didn't if they looked too far. But um, uh, going to the story, I mean, like the, the Steve Williams thing. You know, what 
funny story. So I drove the stock car and I thought, oh my God, what the heck? Because every time I hit the wall, it's like, I thought, oh, I just, oh, it was, you know, it's like running your fingernails down the blackboard, you know. It was like a no rules oh, thing too, wasn't oh, it? Was, anyway, I went out and won the first race, right? And I thought, this is quite cool. You know, I like this. So the next time, of course, I didn't realise in stock cars, they, it was a bit like, pack racing they all gang up so all of a sudden all of a sudden, all of a sudden I was a target so 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 some guy come out of the middle of the track on the grass and just smashed me in the side and I thought oh my god and all of a sudden Tiger Woods come I'm, I'm stuck in the fence and Tiger Woods is coming straight for me right and and, and the deal was you put your arm out the window and wave right yeah, and I put my arm out the window, but he didn't see me, and he slammed me straight in the side, and I broke, I broke my ribs. No way! Yeah, I broke my ribs, and I, and I, and I hopped out and I said, oh, "Tiger, what did you, what did you do that for?" You know? Oh, mate, I didn't realise you had broken rib. <laughs> Bloody golf players, geez, they're aggressive, and. Um, Anyway, it was, uh, in, uh, you know, the, the, the other side of that story is the following weekend with a broken rib, I had to go and race at Phillip Island. Can you, ma- you imagine racing <laughs> at Phillip Island with a broken rib? So, you, guys, uh, you guys always try and hide that stuff too, don't well, you? Well, we did, but I, I t- and, and we, I finished on the podium that, that weekend, but gee, I couldn't even get on the podium. <laughs> I was in so much pain. So that, so stock cars is definitely a no-go, and... and uh, and um, doing it again with Steve Williams is a no-go too. And if he invites Tiger back, it's a, a triple no-go. What was the first racing experience for you? When did you get behind the wheel in a competitive sense, even just to sample something, whether it was a go-kart or whatever, and did you? what, what impact did that have on you? Well, I, I started in motocross, um, and I, we looked at go-karts, and they were, at that particular stage, they were quite unreliable and wasn't that strong, but the motocross scene was, was big in, in New Zealand, and, uh, and I started racing from about seven, so, and I won all the junior motocross stuff, and, you know, and so I, I raced motorbikes up until I was about 15, um, and then the car bug got hold of me, and I thought, hey, this is much easier, and the first competitive car race with was with my brother my younger brother I was 17 and he was 14 and uh, we, we we took mum's Mazda 323 and entered into the Benson and Hedges did she know about this well, of course not <laughs> she always get in the car and go what why is the car bouncing along the road because mum had had four square tires but anyway we um, we grabbed the car Yes, we did tell her, and, and we had a bit of support from Mazda, and uh, they helped us prepare the car with, with Frank, and uh, every day after school we'd sneak out to Pukekohe and go round, round, around, 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 and, um, and uh, so Chris and I, my brother, you know, I think we finished second or third in, in, in our first 500-kilometre race, so yeah, that was really the first time, and, and then from there it was like, hey, I really like this, you know, what, what should we do, Dad? And, and therefore, like him, I guess, in many respects. I mean, he did saloon car stuff as well, but, but the, the open wheel um, direction really started to, to head you down that path, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It did. We, did th- we did that, and then I did a, another following year, another race with, with, with teamed up with my dad and a little mat and a uh, Toyota Truno. A bit like a Celica, but only 1600, and, and we sort of th- threatened all the big V8s, and I managed to pass. The, there was a hero at the time, Leo Leonard, and so I, and then it, people thought, oh, maybe the kid's got some talent. So, and I had a call from Gary Peterson and uh, Dave McMillan, and they had a Nissan-powered 
Ralt RT1 and he said would you like to drive it and I said of course I would um, so they dragged me out for the Grand Prix I think it was 18 and uh, yeah unfortunately we didn't make the race we qualified and um, and didn't make the race the engine decided to expire and yeah, that's how we didn't make the race so um, otherwise I would have been the youngest Grand Prix driver yeah um, but but from there on it was that that's where it started and then it just went on and on and on from from that point you know and we sort of raced Atlantics and you know just kept me sharp for the for the for the while everybody's hibernating in the you know northern hemisphere I was still racing down here and you know I just set my journeys in America Japan Europe UK you know just what the racing I did here I just run to a budget and it enabled me to stay alive when I was travelling around the world trying to be a, you know, stand on the sideline reserve driver and that's that's how I managed to keep myself going. You mentioned the New Zealand Grand Prix there. For, for any Kiwi competitor, even now, it is still to win that, to have that on the on the CV remains a, a huge thing, mate. How much did that mean to you? Oh, it was huge because, yeah, you know, my dad had tried to win it for many, many years and, you know, he spent most of his races down here sitting on the sideline with mechanical issues um, as the way it was in, in those days. So, uh, with you know, he was big, not only inspiration, but he kept the engine going, he built all the engines for the car, mechaniced it, you know, yes, we, we had other mechanics come in and work with it, but, you know, he was right behind it, so so it wasn't me winning, it was him winning it too, you know, so it was pretty special. Very, and, and the fact that you got to, to share a car, I mean, to do all those things together, and he's here today, even, he is, yeah. and following you, isn't he? Yeah, look, he's, you know, he's biggest supporter, and, you know, you only have to mention motor racing, doesn't matter, he's there. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. so the interest has, has always been there, and you know, it's, that'll never change. You went to Europe courtesy of a, of a driver to Europe um, scheme that, that you won and you got to race against the likes of Damon Hill and people like that, didn't mm. you? Well, well the, the New Zealand, the, um, uh, it really sounded better than what it was. It was just a, a title where we tried to generate some funds from and we tried to get a national lottery behind it and, and unfortunately that failed. So we, once again, we, you know, Murray Taylor, who was a Kiwi, running Formula 3 team in 84 and I went went there and had pole for my first my first race so that ins- inspired everybody to try and keep the oily rag thing going you know um, so I managed to do half a dozen races before I think Murray realised there was no money <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and the cheque was in the post um, so yeah it was you know we missed a couple of years and then um, uh, had a, a, a film industry through the courtesy of Rob Whitehouse who managed to put together some funding for a movie um, and there was a tax, tax, you know, legitimate tax break in there. We managed to raise some funds for David Oxton to run the Andy Rouse Sierra down here in the Wellington Street Race and, and all that sort of stuff and for me to go and do a season in Formula 3. So, uh, and I teamed up with Damon Hill and um, we set about doing Formula 3. Unfortunately, the route was a little outclassed to the Reynard for that year and, you know, but I was just pleased to be able to get back and pick up where I left off and, you know, in British Formula 3, which Formula, you know, all the drivers who'd, who'd done well in Formula 3 had gone to Formula 1. So it was the stepping stone to, you know, to Formula 1, which was always the, you know, always the aim. There was a chapter in America as well that I wanted to get to with indie Lights and other things. Um, but clearly, 
before we got to you or get to your, your touring car chapter, Open Wheels was the, as you say, the dream, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And I didn't really look at, you know, at, at anything else. I, I just wanted to be, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to go to Formula One. Um, and that was that was it. But, you know, there was a crossroad. Um, like everything and uh, you know I'd started racing touring cars in Australia with Brocky and Johnson and 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 Bill Bryce who was down here and and I found it really easy and and the doors were opening and uh, and, and then I had to make a decision was I going to keep trying to go down and become a an Indy Lights Indy car driver or, or Indy Lights driver um, the single seater, or do I switch and go to to touring cars? And um, you know, that was where the crossroads. I had to make a decision what I wanted to do. It's a little noisy there a moment ago, so we've moved for this next chapter inside the car. Fittingly, uh, this is uh... just enough room for our groceries. Just <laughs> and and you and I, Rusty, we're rubbing shoulders together, going. Would you like to come for a ride? Yeah. We were talking before about your um, about your ultimate move to to touring cars. Firstly, let's talk about your, your debut at Bathurst, 1988, in a BMW. How did that whole deal come together? It was um, Bill Bryce, and uh, it was a little 325 BMW, so it was pretty in, in class two. Um, and and Bill, because I'd done a lot of single-seater racing, and he'd sponsored me as because he was part of Lockwood Homes, and uh, so we had a good relationship, and he said, oh, why don't you come over and drive the BM? So... Absolutely. So, uh, you know, but because but, I think I spent most of the race looking in the mirror because, uh, you know, the speed difference from class two to, to one was, was, you know, Dick charging around and the Falcon and, you know, that particular era, those cars were pretty uh, pretty big. So this thing was struggling to get up the hills, but it would go like hell over the top. And I remember looking in the mirror going, should I, should I pull over as I go through the top and down? I thought, no, nah, I'll hang into it. And sure enough, I was quick down the hill, but of course, you know, slow going down the straights and up the hill. But great experience. I think we finished runner-up in the in, in that class too, I think, for the even though we had some mechanical issues. But it gave me the, the taste of Bathurst, and I thought, yeah, this is this is a cool place. Everyone talks about it as a as a place of legend, Kiwis and Aussies, but to steer it like your father had done, as we said earlier in the podcast, I mean that's uh, must have been you know uh, quite eye opening and special at the same time. It, it was because you got to remember that I'd been to Bathurst as a kid, you know, when I was sort of eight and and to, to probably thirteen. Um, we've always been backers and forwards, so you know I'd gone from being in the pits, running around in the, the gravel pits in those those days and jumping under the car and you know being a sort of a, a semi-mechanic um, to, to all sudden racing out there was uh, it's like you know I knew the place but didn't know the track so um, you know it's quite amazing how just being in the atmosphere you soak it all up and you obviously listen to things and you know I probably learnt a, a hell of a lot about Bathurst before I got there e- even you know in those days I think there used to be more accidents with the when the track was closed with the spectators falling down the bank, <laughs> hammered out of their heads, driving the track at night. So um, I remember it was always the, the hot gossip was how many cars ca- crashed during the night, you know? <laughs> so as you know, those days are well gone. 
only a couple of years later, 1990, you partner with with Jeff Allen in a in a Shell Ford Sierra, and you finish on the podium, second in the in the great race. I mean, you talk about heading then toward a, a touring car chapter in your in your life. I mean, clearly that was the sort of stuff that convinced you, wasn't it? Yeah, well, look, and 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 people around me. I, I guess as a driver, you're always convinced. It's just getting the right place at the right time and all the stars to align, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, that was a race where Jeff and I were, were quick all day. The main car, Dick's car, and John had broken down, and uh, and we were we were we were leading it right right at the top, right at the top. We stopped for the last stop, and Dick wanted to get into the car, uh, which was which was was great. But unfortunately, he hadn't tried to get in the car all week, and uh, and the runner because we was on a, on a runner jammed and uh, he tried for 12 or 15 seconds to get into the car the seat wouldn't move far enough back for no, him no far enough back for him no and um, and of course you know luckily I was suited up ready to go and, and he, he couldn't get in so he had to get out I jumped in so you know we lost 20 odd seconds and uh, we lost the race by 12 so in hindsight if Dick had got in the car he would have been able to I'd say we would have won that race for, for sure, and if we hadn't lost the time, we you know we we would have won it as well because you know we had we had a bit of a cushion on Percy, and uh, we lost it all in that change. So you know that's just the way it goes. And as I say, if Dick had got in the car, we 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 would have won that race. Yeah. Earlier in the series, I, I spoke with Glenn Seaton about the development of the Sierra and the significant impact that that Australia and even New Zealand made on the car, particularly towards the end of the of the racing life of the of the RS five hundred uh, Cosworth. To drive one of those things at Bathurst, <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> The, acceler- the sheer acceleration was, it's one of those things, you know, and you put your foot down and you've got so much power and your head pushes back into the headrest and you go, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and that's what it was like every lap, you know. But it, but the corners were a different thing because it had a lot of lag and the more boost you gave it, the bigger the lag was. So you had to keep the momentum through the corner. Mem- remember, I think we were running on, what, small tyres, you know, 17-inch or whatever they were. They are pretty, pretty tiny. Things might even be smaller than that. So you had to keep the momentum through the car, put your foot flat mid corner, and hope like hell that the car was straight when the boost when it all come in. So they were there was a technique to driving them, but I tell you they were they were an awesome they were an awesome car to drive. You know, and they, by the time they come, they become reliable, well developed. You know, they, in the early days their turbos were a bit of an issue, but you know Dick Dick's Dick car, and, and of course I drove you know, the best cars. I drove Dick's cars, Peter's cars, and uh, you know they were at that stage they were well sorted and great great kits to drive. You talk about Peter Brock there a moment ago, and in the in the phase where Brock raced a, a mobile Sierra, that that kind of came about in connection with or working with Andy Rouse to begin with, and that was when you would ultimately go super touring. He was the the man that you would drive for in the Ford Mondeo, wasn't he? Yeah, and you know it's all about stars aligning, right? So um, uh, Alan Gale was the big mover for me in in that, and and I, I, it had all come about racing Bill Bryce's M3. Brocky um, was driving an M3 as well at Pukekohe, and I passed him. And uh, he said to Alan, "You better go and talk to that little shit and get him in the car." <laughs> so, so Alan came up to me. He said, "Hey, you little shit, you, do you want to have a drive for us next year?" And I said, "No, nah, get stuff. I don't want to drive for for you and Peter." 
I'm kidding. Of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'd love to. And um, and that's where it all began, really. So Peter and I shared the Nissan Mobile. We won the Nissan Mobile Series um, the following year. And then I drove at Bathurst with the team with, with Bradley. Bradley, let's have a chat. It was fantastic. I've never laughed so much in all my life. You know, he, he was actually half serious back then. He thought he was going to Formula One too. Um, so uh, we teamed up, and I think he crashed the car, which was kind of good. It brought him down a peg or two. Um, but but Andy was in the team and drove with Peter, and we struck up a relationship, and I nurtured it, and da da da. And then all of a sudden, he got the Ford contract, and Alan Gale went to work for Peter Brock. And he said, hey, why don't you give the little shit a go? And um, that's how it, how it all came about, you know. And it was a Mondeo, it was a world car, didn't need to be a British driver, a European. They had the budget and uh, they said, hey, let's put Paul in the car and give him a go. And that's how it all came about. They were a magic car. We'll, we'll focus on that just for a moment because it was such a... Uh, a highlight of, of your career. Where were you when you drove the Mondeo Subatura for the first time and what feeling did it give you? <laughs> yeah, well, it was slow. It was in, the, the, the Andy decided he was going to go rear-wheel drive with the cars. And uh, so, you know, here's this. You've just got a, a Ford contract. You, they give me a, an, an RS500 to drive on the road, you know, the new Escort, and uh, I just thought I'd, I'd made it. There was my name on the side of the car. No other, I didn't have to share it with anybody. And uh, all of a sudden we get there and the car was slow. And we tested with the group and we were about half a second off last, both Andy and I. The good part was Andy was too, you know, because Andy was like Peter Brock in, in, in England. Multi-time British touring car yeah. champion, running the outfit at the, at the time to beat, really. Wasn't Absolutely, it? yeah, he was, you know, he was he was God in touring cars. So I was only a few tenths behind him, so it gave me some encouragement, <laughs> but we were last. So we kept persevering with it. We went to another test, still last. So tried some other things, didn't work. And then all of a sudden, we missed three, I think maybe four races, trying to develop the Mondeo for the 93 season. And then Ford just said, hey, Andy, do you want the contract or not? You better make this thing go. So Andy threw pretty much everything he had from the Toyota development into the front of the Mondeo and made a front-wheel drive. And we come out of Pembury. Now, Kevin and I have never driven front-wheel drive in my life. So, and Andy had done the testing and got everything going. So I went to Pembury, just got my car on that day, never driven front-wheel drive, qualified, you know, towards the back, but come through in the race and finished 10th, I think. So that was my first experience with it. And, uh, And then we went to the British Grand Prix with the next one, and I qualified on the second row and finished on the podium. And, and and from that on, we started, you know, it was another four or five races and I won a race and, and all those sorts of things that it developed. And we ended up finishing third in the championship um, after missing four rounds, you know. So ifs and buts again, you know. So they, they talk about stars aligning. It all aligned. I had everything lined. It was done. I was standing on the sidelines and literally standing on the sidelines, you know. For enthusiasts that are listening, trying to detect the sound of that car while we were chatting there a moment ago, it's a Ferrari 488 Challenge that's just pulled up in front of Paul in the line here, getting ready to do the, the run uh, up the hill climb at, uh, at Leadfoot Challenge. 
You said about finishing third in the in the championship in the British Touring Car Championship. I mean, golden era. Some unbelievable manufacturers that came through. Uh, you know, in the early to, to mid and even late nineties, um, their uh, Formula One style development started to filter through in the cars in in many ways. But although you finished third in the championship that year in '93, one of the real uh, massive ticks made, and, and still uh, for me is, is a big one, was to win the first of two World Cups in touring car racing. I mean, that was just mighty. Yeah, it was, and, and look, at one stage we weren't, we weren't, we couldn't get in. We weren't entered for the race. Neither had uh, because New Zealand was not. A, there was no other drivers from New Zealand in there. We couldn't. It was a team race, and couldn't they find it on the Atlas. Yeah, yeah, and once again, uh, you know, Alan Goward moved from running Andy Rouse's round. Rouse engineering team to running the, the Toka series and so Alan pulled all the right strings and at, at, literally at the last hour we got the okay from the FIA to be able to run in that event so it, I, I didn't know if I was running in that event until pretty much the Friday so over to Monza we went never been to Monza before Escort. I think they call it the, the Mascort, but anyway, that's another story. So you go to Monza. So we go to Monza, and it got I think there was twenty current world Formula One drivers there, um, and the best cream of you know Scafi was there, and everybody from around the world had driven touring cars or hadn't was was in the field. There was about there was about Alice Alice McRae. He's really worried about this car. <laughs> Shouldn't be. Um, you know, went out the, the practice pole <laughs> I mean the, the Mondeo was I was on form I just I'd won a whole lot of races in Britain I was the guy to beat and, and as it turned out I was the guy to beat in the, in the world so on pole um, by reason I think Tarquini and Larini was was right and the Alfie can you imagine beating the Alphas on an Italian track man they were they were they were really annoyed you know so uh, you know off we went for two we did two whatever they were pretty pretty long races one was wet one was dry I won them both and, and won the won the World Cup so all of a sudden I was I went from obscurity to being you know being the best driver in, in the world in touring cars what reaction did that have back home here in, in New Zealand Oh, it was, it was huge. I had streets named after me. I had cars that were, you know, it was a whole series of cars. A Radisich car was built for, by Ford. Don't play that down. The Ford Telstar Radisich, they made 200 of them, didn't they? A little, uh, what are we trying to, I'm, I'm trying to think, I had Michelin tyres, uh, Bilstein shocks maybe. Uh, you, you actually had a bit of, it wasn't just in a badge sense, you, it was, you had a bit of development in it, didn't you? Yeah, we did. You know, Louise Te- Teasdale and Gary Jackson were big movers within Ford and they were, keen on motor racing and it all you know plus in those days New Zealand was was they could do things down here they had a production line of cars so special colour was done the aesthetics inside signed steering wheels bigger wheels I played a bit with the suspension and um, yeah there was more like it was over a thousand of them built in the end so so they um, you know they, they managed to clear out what was a very 
the Telstra was sort of a, you know a, a, not a great car um, and by the time we finished and turned into the Radisic Telstra it was it was actually a mighty little car yeah. you know you've made it in life when you get a car named after you I reckon <laughs> yeah, so, so look you know at that stage I'd come here and people running down the road after me for autographs so so the and of course everything was live or well not live on TV was broadcast on TV and Murray Taylor Murray Walker Ray, Radisic and <laughs> So everyone's calling me Rat at Siege, which is fine. and can call me what they want. But so, uh, and, and I tell you, the, the, around the world, didn't matter if I come here, went to South Africa, through Europe, Australia. You know, people knew knew me as as um, you know British touring cars, touring car driver. And it was it was. I reckon it took about twenty years for that to really die away. It was mega, and uh, you know, you talk about Murray Walker. I can't, I can't impersonate him very well, but you know, it was Paul Radisich. You know, he and he's off, and he's off. But there was a story of legend going around at the time that someone in the family had perhaps tried to gently let him know that that wasn't the correct way. I mean, he's a legend. You can't correct Murray Walker, but is that true? Did someone try and gently let him know that that's not how you say your surname? Um, it did, but I, th- I figured when when I produced a whole lot of t-shirts with Radisich written on it, and they stopped they. Stopped Sold like hotcakes, I didn't, didn't really bother me at all. <laughs> so you go back to back. In, ni- in 94, you win the World Cup again um, in the Mondeo. You were recently reunited with, with one of the World Cup winning cars too because there's this great... Um, in New Zealand, on a per capita basis, the love for motorsport here is phenomenal, and there there is a lot of great old cars in this country. So you got to drive it again recently, didn't you? Yeah, I did, and and look, it was like you know, time stood still. The cars, it was a it was a beautiful little car to drive, you know, and uh, and it, and it still is. So I brought like, brought back some great memories, and had a little dice with Stephen Richards, and um, showed them old cars can still be competitive. Um, you, know. you don't need the big arm muscles now, though, do you? I think it's got power steering these days. Yeah, it had it had power. Poor old when I we brought that car out for Pukekohe and and uh, Wellington, it didn't have power steering. And poor Glenn Seaton shared the drive with me, and he, he literally lasted two or three laps. And he was looking for the door handles to get out. You know, it was it was a beast of a thing without power steering. You know, torque steer and but because I drove it so much and drove, you know, all got to remember we had cars in all sorts, all parts of the world. And I Andy sent me out to test all of them, so I was in a car, you know if not once or twice a week, you know, so I didn't notice it as much, you know, as what someone who'd never driven front wheel drive would. sounding car it was uh, at a point in time too where sequential shifting in in uh in touring car or saloon car racing really uh it went that direction um and uh, you know it seemed from the broadcast like people were fairly friendly away from the circuit but but man they, they were animals that was fierce racing once you once you got on track wasn't it yeah, look, it's, you know, yeah, I think people, you know, thought you could just 
we'd hit each other and and didn't really matter. But he, it got really serious towards the end. I mean, the money. That, how, how serious? Oh well, he, everyone needed a lawyer at the track. Um, so you know, the manufacturers were deadly serious about winning it because it was world exposure. And um, you know, then you had the likes of Williams coming in and TWR and you know Ray Malik and you know that there were Formula One teams that were spending big money and and turning these touring cars into single seater cars. You know, what kind of budget. I, I, they were saying around to sort of ten to fifteen million pound mark per year. Per year, yeah. You know, when you looked at development on differs fully electronic, you know, there's two or three million pound of development in just the diff. So it was getting, it was getting out of, out of out of hand. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's what killed super touring. You would go for the bulk of your time there, uh, you know, driving for Ford, but there was a brief stint with uh, with Peugeot as well, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. It was look it was, after a number of years, the the promise was, you know, next year, next year, next year, and it just never came. And then the decision that Ford were were making, they were getting later and later, and you you, you couldn't develop a car if you started building it towards the end of the year. You could just about forget, you know, forget about it. it needed to be done, done the year before, you know. So it, it, Ford couldn't commit to a team, and it was just. And I just sort of thought, well, look, it's time to move on and try something else. Peugeot, the car was just horrible, but but the deal was the following year they were going to take the French, all the French equipment, and and run it as a French car, which was a beautiful car. It was winning everything in Europe. So I figured one more year of pain. Um, for something that that could be really good, yeah, long term. Yeah, it did, and then unfortunately, at the end of the year, Peugeot decided to to stop pull out of racing. So that was the end of that. Now, before we conclude this British touring car um, chapter, I want to talk about that road car you mentioned before because that was a sexy road car that they they gave you. You and and your wife Patricia had a, a an apartment in um, in the UK there, and I think you were able to park it by this sort of area that had quite a tall wall and it looked hidden or protected, but that did not stop the thieves, did it? What happened? Well, look, there was just one car that got signed. you got to remember, at the time, the brand new car, this Escort Cosworth, big rear wing, you know. You, Gorgeous car. Enthusiasts will know what I'm talking about, all the spoilers and and uh, there's a few stories about that car I can tell about Alan Gow, which I should. Uh, but anyway, uh, probably I, I remember going to the supermarket, I had, just had a plain white, I thought I had black ones and bright blue ones and I thought, no, I'm just going to get a plain white one. And I went to supermarket and left, got come back all of a sudden, where's the car? Gone. You know, so, so, so it was the first one. The, the second one, yeah, we they sort of hidden behind a door where we lived in an apartment. And, uh, and I come out one day and I opened the door and I couldn't lock it. I thought, that's really strange. But didn't think too much of it. And then a couple of days after, I come out from, from you know, the apartment, look, look into the... Sp- Park, uh, parking space and it was gone and the, 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 the annoying thing was that was the last RS500 made and, and after I'd driven it they were going to put it in the museum so I had to make the call to head office and Ford and say, you know that purpley you know bright coloured you know RS500 you gave me yeah 
yeah, sorry, but it's stolen. And I always got the feeling, they, uh, I think they thought because it was the last one, I'd probably put it in a container and send it back to New Zealand or somewhere, you know. But um, In truth, it was never found, is that no, right? No, I think, well, there was a lot. You know, the thing was probably broken up and taken somewhere in Europe, but who knows. But they were a popular car. And, uh, yeah, a few stories. I'll tell you the other story with the 500. We're going down the motorway, flat out. And I had Alan Gale with me, and he said, he's hitting all these the, the airbag stuff, you know, as Alan does. And he said, what happens if we put it in a reverse? And all of a sudden he grabbed the gear lever and it went, boom! <laughs> so, uh, call the so, so Alan said, yeah, oh, not very strong reverse gear, is it? <laughs> so so we took the guy to, to take the car to the Ford dealer, and uh, and I said, oh, it's got no reverse gear. Could you fix it for me? And uh, uh, and they took it away, and, and then he, he rang me back and he said, it's, is it, it's any idea what happened here? Because there's parts everywhere. <laughs> I said, oh, I, I just put it in reverse and went backwards, and the thing went boom, you know. <laughs> I didn't have the t- guts to tell him we put it in reverse at 100 mile an hour. More with Paul Radisich in a moment. In this series, I speak with some of the most passionate designers, collectors, riders and drivers I know, like Toby Price, who won the most gruelling race on the planet, Dakar. You run, yeah, 9,500 kilometres over the 14-day period. Most of the time, you're up at least 3 o'clock in the morning to be on the bike at 4 our biggest day, yeah, we have is 1,100 kilometres in a day, so it's like that's riding a motorcycle from Brisbane to Sydney. Listen to the full episode with the first Aussie to win the Dakar, Toby Price, here on Rusty's Garage. In New Zealand, the racing is intense. In Australia, it's just something they sleep in. You get an opportunity to come and drive uh, supercars in Australia. The V8 formula is absolutely taking off. And you get a chance to hook up with Dick Johnson again and drive in the in the Supercars Championship. So incredibly different machine to the Mondeos and the Peugeot that you'd been, been used to driving. How did the opportunity to come and race back down under uh, all come together? Well, I get with the Peugeot deal, I was out of contract. Um, John Bauer decided to move Go to Briggs, on. wasn't it, I think? Uh, yeah, I think it was, yeah, and, and run as sort of his own program, effectively, with John. Um, so, so he'd let, you know, he was, you know, was the relationship came to an end, and um, um, uh, Dick's manager at the time... Um, gave, was it... Was it uh, Wayne, Wayne, Wayne rang me and, and said, um, what are you doing, blah, blah, blah. So it's sort of, you know, here's an opportunity if you want to come down. And, and we said, hey, but come, come down at Christmas and chat about it. And the next thing was sort of a one-year deal to, to come and do it. And I thought, look, it'd be nice to get out of the, 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 the cold and come spend some, some, uh, a year in the, in the heat. So uh, that's what we did. And teamed up and and of course a brand new car with the AU, um, which you know was a disaster in itself. So um, it went a great looking car. I think many fans would probably ag- uh, agree with that. Sadly, but you were on course to win Bathurst that year, mate. And and you've said earlier in the chat that you know if spuds and maybes, that's not your style. But that really was the one that got away. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, it was. And look, it was it was um, um, the year of you know the, the aerodynamics were wrong in that car. It was just horrible. We couldn't get it. Just couldn't get it to work. Uh, even though we did have a pole, I think at um, Tasmania, 
Um, and then we went to Bathurst and uh, had a good engine, and it sort of handled reasonably reasonably well. But I'd, I'd also run the old EL at, at uh, around the streets of um, Surface and won all the races there. So I'd driven, because uh, remember I hadn't driven a supercar before, and I thought, shit, this is really well balanced. If only we can get the front end get the AU to work like the old EL and we sort of worked hard on trying to do that just give it a huge amount of understeer and worked our way through it so it sort of started to understand what that car needed. Yeah and Bathurst you know we were quick all day, we led all pretty much all day, the last 15 laps um, literally just, I mean we got a puncher I mean it's as simple as that and uh, after you know leading it and uh, and by the time we come, come in and then trying to get into the pit with a flat tyre scooped up a whole lot of rubbish in the in the radiator but I mean the race was over at that stage and I handed another one to Murph so um, yeah it, it, it definitely was you know without a doubt the one that or the second one that got away anyway Was it tough to take mate in the sense that um, you know the the vision most people will recall you out of the car on the, the side of the road I think you even patted a horse or something yeah. like, which was very unlike you <laughs> and you were clearly devastated weren't you you knew that it was it was uh, you recounted the, the story in 1990 before and Dick trying to jump in and things like that but the 99 nearly a decade later was was you know clearly potential to be top step yeah look it was but look at the time it was yeah hey really disappointing but you know I'd been conditioned <laughs> through life it's like hey there's a next year there's a next year I think it's like everything it's it, when it when there is no more next year it, then it becomes disappointing so you know it's another 10 years to become probably more disappointing now than what it was at the time you know just shrug your shoulders and it was one thing about I've always tried to do it always give it my best shot and and least I, when I get back say I gave it my best shot if it's mechanical or whatever those things happen that's you have to accept that with motor racing and and, I, and I've always tried to live by that and as long as I can I, I, I know that I always did the best that I could do. Those years in the Supercars Championship were highly competitive weren't they among uh, all of the, the team we just went through this remarkable growth didn't it? Yeah, it did, and, and I, you know, the, the touring cars in, in Europe, I'd caught the wave, and uh, that was dropping off, and then I went to the next, you know, the, the next thing, the next happening thing, that, and um, which was V8 supercars, and that turned into be the most competitive touring car racing in the world as well. So I, I really caught the wave on the on the touring car side of it, but yeah, you know, they were. Yeah, sort of the, the two-liter cars went from when you went testing was rather boring, you know, laborious because they weren't that fast. But of course, the racing was spectacular, and um, and then you you did went to the V8s, and uh, the testing was exciting, but the racing wasn't because you had so many other factors, you know, tires dropping away, and you know, just bigger cars, big heavier cars, and you were locked into one sort of line, you know, where the smaller cars you could zip and manoeuvre around and do whatever you needed to do. So that took a bit of getting used to too, you know. That was my next question because you may not remember, but in, in that, uh, I don't know whether it was 99 or 2000, you actually took me for a ride at Queensland Raceway and I can remember how uh, fearsome you were, mate. You, you, gra- you literally grabbed the thing by the scruff of the neck and... It was. It must have been very different to get used to. I mean, you're a racer. You guys adapt. That's the, that's your nature. But but just 180 of what the front wheel drive on Dio was was like. Yeah. Look, I, I think I don't feel I was always that aggressive until I went to Europe, and all of a sudden I had to wake up and 
What yeah, caused that? Why did you feel you needed to do that? Just the, the nature of the racing. They were short races, and, and if you didn't make your move on the first couple of corners, you could find yourself stuck where you are. So you had to be on your game and fully with it. Um, from the from the get go, you know, not not that you you're not, but you know, you had, if there was a slight gap, you had to make one, or there wasn't a gap, you had to make one. Where where um, you know the supercars are not quite so much, but I think you know I I, I, I felt I was probably aggressive, and that was me, you know. I just I, it was I had to get myself up and going, and that's how I you know that's what worked for me. I can remember my colleague Lee Diffie. Um, running with uh, the nickname The Rat. Now, he tells me he didn't christen you or give give you that nickname. That had come about in Europe. How did that all happen and how did you feel about it? Well, no, it did actually start in Australia. It started, did it? Yeah, it started with uh, uh, shall we call him press mogul uh, Paul Gover you know, ah. for, the, for, the, for the Sun. You know, or the, 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 uh, Herald Sun. Herald Sun, yeah. So um, one of the big papers of, of, of Australia. So he's keen motorsports. So it sort of started them, and he decided to chat to the marketing people in Shell because he had this great idea, as Paul does. <laughs> Why don't you call him the rat, you know? <laughs> so they, uh, Brody, Ross Brody, come to me and he said, we've got this idea, well, what do you think? Uh, I said, oh, I don't, you know sells a few things that's great so um so all of a sudden you know started producing merchandise with the rat on it and go the rat and the rat rat this and all of a sudden it won some award for there's a rat on a hat <laughs> and and all of a sudden people started buying it but i say now we're also starting to win races and be competitive too you know and dick dick's team's got a huge following so it didn't take long to start selling out a rat merchandise you know and um uh, and that's sort of how it came. Then it stuck, and then the fans really took to it. And and as I say, you can call me anything, but I was making some money off it, so I was even happier. What was Dick Johnson like as a as a boss? And I I asked that with almost a leading question here because you and I were at a function recently, and you shared a story about going boating with Dick Johnson and parking up or endeavouring to park up beside him. Uh, I think at Stradbroke Island or something, wasn't it? What happened that day? Well, firstly, working with Dick was was great. You know, he's Dick. Dick tells you how it is, and that's great. That's you know, either you can ask for it. Sometimes it was difficult for Dick because he went. I did the '99 season. It was his last season, and then he tried to settle in to be the team boss. For the following year, and it was a, it was a hard transition for him, as you can appreciate. You know, with so many years of just, even though it was his team, you know, you could get away from the team and go <laughs> put your helmet on and do your stuff. So he was going through quite a big transition. Um, you know, looking back on it now, but yeah, when I when I going back to your boat story, you know, Dick's always been a huge boatie, and and my experience with boats was zero. So all of a sudden, I did a deal with Mustang Gary Garoni. He said, "What size boat do you want, Paul?" I oh, the biggest one you've got, you know. <laughs> so luckily, he didn't. He didn't. Uh, he didn't do that. He gave me a 30, 32 Mustang, which is a beautiful boat. And I'd never driven it before, and uh, and I'd got my license by driving a jet ski. So Dick said, "Well, what, what, come out to Stratty and we'll, you know, have a bit of a, an afternoon out there." So anyway, I got to found Stratty. God knows how, but found it. 
Anyway, when I get there, Dick's got all his mates lined up on the shore. As as Dick, I thought, you know, be throwing an anchor down, but no, no, no. Everyone's parked on the shore. So here's this little spot <laughs> that Paul has to try and back this '32 Mustang into, right? So that sounds really good, but of course. The wind's blowing one way and the current's going at 120 mile an hour the other. So, uh, uh, like, they knew I was, I was, you know, I was onto hiding to nothing. So they set me up beautifully. So, okay, I'll back it in there. <laughs> so I spin the thing around, you know, backwards. And, and, of course, the tide got me and the wind got me and, uh, and, uh, and I managed to get it right in there. But in the last minute, the, the last bit of the wind got it, swung the, uh, the hull around and smack straight into Dick's boat knocking a big hole in the top of it. So, um, you know, he was uh, he was pretty quiet from there on in. <laughs> I was too frightened to ask him, firstly, Dick, how much to fix your boat? And secondly, really sorry. And uh, I, don't, I think he held it against me for the rest of my time. <laughs> the podcast is about anything with, with an engine, so we'll just keep the boat theme going here just, just for a moment because for a time you were... Uh, almost neighbour to a colleague of mine, Daryl Beattie, who is he is mad. I don't know how you survived that period living living near him. But anyway, uh, one particular afternoon, he and I are out on his um, on his wakeboarding boat, and it runs out of fuel, and we're desperate because it's it's just drifting in the breeze. But we're not we're not all that far from home, and we could see we thought we could see that you were home. And so we rang you and said, "Hey, can you come and can you come and rescue us?" So you left your daughter asleep. <laughs> good, good father. <laughs> Thanks, Pastor. Jump, jump, jumped on. No, he's a good father. Uh, jumps on on the jet ski, and you come out to rescue us. And it was just one of those freakish. If it could have gone wrong, it went wrong moments. You you turned. We threw the rope out <laughs> to get to, for you to catch it. And it got sucked up by the jet ski, and, yeah, yeah. and next thing we're all drifting. <laughs> Mate, it's dumb and dumber, isn't it? <laughs> it was terrible. Yeah. We had to drift to some poor random's house that we didn't know, go in and, and uh, call, call, for, call for help. Oh, terrible. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I think with Daryl, I mean, probably alcohol poisoning was still in my system. <laughs> and I still haven't really worked out the wind and the tide thing in the, in the boats, you see. So, um, oh, I'll tell you what, they're... they're there's so many stories like that you can't believe. But, didn't, um, didn't you go down one day and he was trying to launch his? Um, what did he have? It wasn't a gyrocopter. It was a, it was. Um, it was a big fan. Uh, uh, it, it, it back. <laughs> with the parachute. <laughs> yeah, and he's standing on his jetty with the thing going, and a million mile an hour trying to launch off from the jetty. But I think what he had to really do was go up to a big hill and jump off, jump off the hill to get it going. But well, that was Daryl. I mean, we fun, fun time. Daryl's just the loveliest guy, fantastic motorbike rider and just fantastic neighbour other than having alcohol poisoning every every other weekend. You got to do a bit of two-wheel stuff with him at the time. You had a Harley, I think, didn't you? What was it, a V-Rod maybe? Yeah, it was when the V-Rod first came out. Uh, uh, Patricia, my wife, bought it for us for my 40th and uh, and Daryl said about teaching me how to ride it. <laughs> this is how you do a wheel stand. What? This is how you get sparks off the bottom of the chassis when you lean it over. So yeah, I, um, yeah. I don't think I'm, I, don't, I was. I was not brave enough to be a motorbike rider. That's for real. Most of us aren't, mate. They're a special breed. Back to your supercars career. Uh, let's get serious again here for for a second. The the. 
hardest aspect for me in, in talking to you about Bathurst is is the injuries. Um, firstly, the, the Team Kiwi crash in, in 06. Um, what happened that day? It was brake failure, I think, wasn't it? What, what went wrong? And, and can you recount for us the crash that day? When, uh, brake, brakes were fine. It, it's when I come out of the chase hip and I was um, going round the outside of um, a slower car and just misjudged it. And he moved over, touched the left right wheel and it just broke the steering arm oh, and just just went straight into the well, unfortunately for me you know they've changed it now but there was an earth bank and it just you know kids you can appreciate you're accelerating you know it may not have been that high speed maybe you know 120 mile an hour but it was straight into an earth bank you know and it, it just car dug in flipped on its side and uh, of course my feet just went through the through the firewall and um, uh, broke, broke. I think broke my left, you know, left ankle and shattered a few bones in there. So it wasn't, it, it wasn't too bad. But I remember with the car lying on its side, and I've got something falling inside my helmet, you know, and I'm heavily winded. Um, and I think, oh my god, it's fuel. Luckily, it was water. Um, but you know, for for a brief moment there, I thought I'm going to be. This thing's going to go up, and I'm going to be a goner. So um, yeah. And, and heavily winded at the time. So, look, we were, you know, we recovered from it. It was one of the, just one of those things. I shouldn't have been on the outside, but I misjudged it. I should have given him a bit more room, but, you know, just hit it, just touched the, the wheel at the right angle and just shattered the steering arm. You would rebound from that, as you say, and, and uh, race with the Kellys at Bathurst, and, I mean, you had success at uh, a podium at, at Sandown, and then in 08, was it a stuck throttle? And... and that was that was the, the checkered flag, wasn't it? In some respects, what happened? Yeah, it was. It was, and it look, it was. Rick Kelly and I were having great success. You know, yeah, second at um, uh, at um, sent at uh, no at um, Phillip Island. Oh, yeah, and we, you know, we were really competitive. And I was I was enjoying the role of stepping back and actually being a co-driver because, in in, in actual effect, my full-time racing had sort of. Really, you know, I would have been just happy to continue with top teams as being a being a co-driver, and probably had a good another five years of doing that, you know. So, um, uh, yeah, practice on Saturday up over the top of McPhillamy, you know, flat out new set of tyres, ready to punch in something that uh, frightened the hell out of uh, anybody. And as I went over McPhillamy, lifted my foot off, and the throttle jam wide open. And I tried to do everything as you can do at 200. You know, try even try to think about flicking the switch off, but and, and, you know, you're talking just fractions of seconds. But clutching on the brake, but of course the momentum and everything, the car just went straight off the track, and, in, and once again head on into uh, this time a concrete wall, and uh, you know the impact just shattered both my feet, uh, broke my sternum, uh, spinal damage, and and of course rattled uh, rattled the, the skull. Um, so it took. It, it, it just took a long time to recover. A good couple of years, you know, ringing in your ears and headaches and all those terrible things, let alone having, you know, with, with because I'd done spinal damage, it was being a cast up into my to my neck or lie down for three months. So I just took a sleeping tablet for three months and just lay down and uh, effectively woke up in three months and tried to learn to walk again and hours and hours of trying to people carry me to the swimming pool to learn how to walk and get everything working again so it was 
it was a terrible time, not only for me but my family, and it was tough, you know, really tough. So we got through it, and um, you know, by that time I think I sort of said, and Patricia was keen for me to maybe think about taking another career, <laughs> but I couldn't find one. So um, here I am at Leadfoot. Yeah. Did you make the call ultimately to to stop, or was there a a doctor that made that call for you or was there a hope that you would come back and how did that because it's a it's a it's a really difficult thing when i talk to any of you guys it's a really difficult thing to stop isn't it it, it is you know it's, it takes a real uh, uh, you know some real willpower to say that's the end of it you know like dario franchetti and you know for instance said no i've had enough okay he's, he's got a, had an accident too but yeah, it's a real... I think in their head you'll always go, well, I think I can go better. I think, I, you know, all those sorts of stupid things. Um, but for me, it just, it, you know, it's... I think I could have come back and probably picked up where I left off a couple of years later, possibly, but time just goes on, you know, and, and you've got to find another way of supporting the family and, and uh, you know, hence we, we got involved more into business and, and that's where we are today. Let's talk about that because it's a it's a family business. It's automotive based. Your dad ran it for almost thirty years, didn't he? Yeah, he did. We, well, I help him get it. Got you know to. We initially took it on as a. It's an oil company, and started out as a recycled oil company, and we've turned it into a, just a, a blending plant in the last twenty five years. So, um, yeah, look, I help. You know, I, I, I was there at the day it all started. I took on the Auckland area and sold oil before I disappeared on my racing career. So. Um, you know, to come back, it's still there, still running, and you know now I've picked up, picked up where he's left off, and and uh, he's still involved though. You know, at 80 years old, he's, you know, it keeps him going every morning just to be involved in, you know, what he what he started. It's, a, it's got a strong uh, agricultural side, which is very appropriate for New Zealand. Isn't it? Yeah, it is. Look, we're in every every area of automotive and trucking and through to the ag sector and you know we're, we're we're not huge in any but we cover the whole lot and you know we're up through the islands as well so you know it's it, the aegis oil is the name of the the brand and uh, it, me, it means in greek a shield of protection and as it's turned out we're the only company that's producing and manufacturing automotive lubricants in new zealand so you know it's we're really proud of that and um you know it's, 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 it'll always be a small little company but it's still a family family company all right, let's talk about a couple of fun things. Uh, firstly, craziest thing that's happened to you as far as uh, any promotional activity is concerned. I understand, I, I think maybe during a hot lap once, a, a guy proposed to a girl or something or other. Did that happen? Yeah, that was true. Ford, yeah, Ford had a request that uh, he wanted um, uh, the husband-to-be wanted husband-to-be to drive the couple around Donington at, at high speed and then they would rush off and go and get married. So... So that's what I did. So that was pretty exciting. They were they were thrilled and obviously big fans of touring cars and and uh, of Ford, the Ford brand as well. So yeah, I don't know about the craziest, but it's one that comes yeah comes to mind straight away. As we're sitting here in the queue with you getting ready to, to have a run up the hill climb, there's a couple of Rotaries parked beside us. The family has had a long association with with Rotaries over time. You had one in an open wheeler and you, you've driven several of them, haven't you? I think I had all the range as I was as growing up. We had RX2s, RX3s. We were sort of a, a when my, my dad was running the service stations and the automotive repairs. We were sort of known as the Mazda repairer. He had a 13B and a single seater, 
our car, so yeah, we were rotary mad, you know. We're all deaf, that's part of the reason why. Favourite race car of all time. Can you do that? And, and it's probably a hard one to answer because they're, they're all good for different reasons, but is there one that's special to you? No, the one, always the ones that were compared, the ones that were winning, they were always the best cars. Everyone said to me, you know, do you have fun in racing? I said, the only time I really have fun is when I'm winning. Well, you have the fastest car, but look, I, I, if you picked a car, I mean, all the single-seaters were great to drive, but, you know, for me, the Mondeo, the most success, that really brought my name to the fore. It gave me a career, you know, gave me some spending money on the weekends and, uh, you know, it, it also gave me, you know, the title of best touring car driver in the world. Is there a little resto project or has there been one in recent time in the Paul Radisic garage? Look, we've got a whole lot of my old racing cars sitting there, so at any time I can pick up the resto if I really want to. Um, but look, at the moment I've got one of my old Mondeos that's down in the museum at Tony Quinn's in Highland. Uh, and as a, as a family, we've got all sorts of cars that, are, that need restoration, but no big projects at the moment. Watch your daily drive, and I think... It's uh, one that we have shared a bit of a love of. I, I had up until recently a, a Golf GTI and I loved it. It was a couple of years old, but they're great car. Is that, is that your roadie? Yeah, it is my roadie. I've, I've gone through one engine, one gearbox. <laughs> and, um, but, but, and, it's, and I should really have a diesel from a fuel economy point of view, but, um, but uh, you know, I really enjoy driving the Volkswagen everyday car. ask you a bit about the car that you're competing this weekend. Firstly, we're at uh, Rod Millen's Leadfoot Festival. It is my first time here. It's up on the Coromandel, Hahe in, uh, on the North Island. It, it, what he's done here is amazing, isn't it? Look, it sure is. It's, um, it really is, you know, South Pacific Goodwood, you know, let's put it, you know, it's uh, Rod, it's this event, I've been in it two or three times now, and the event has grown and grown and grown each year, and you know, if you think of Goodwood, you know, this is a, a mini Goodwood, and I guess Rod wants to grow it to, to be a Goodwood, and um, you know, it's just a great atmosphere, people can come to touch and feel the cars, and you know, they're just, there's some real oddball stuff down, down here, as well as some real exciting stuff, so, you know, it gives the fans an opportunity to come down and just be really be, be part of the whole event it's it's very relaxed and just a lot of fun cool hill climb up what is effectively his driveway big turnout of fans all kinds of cars and motorbikes as you say and and some stars that that drive and ride them you have something interesting <laughs> this year. That's probably an understatement. So it's badged a Nissan March. We know them in this part of the world as a Nissan Micra, but this thing's got 650 horsepower. I oh, know, it's literally out of control. And, um, you know, Glenn uh, Hodges, who's built the car, is just uh, an enthusiast from Hamilton. You know, I saw this car at um, Hampton Downs middle of the year. He was doing a club event. I went and talked, spoke to him, and... He said, uh, I said, does it four-wheel drive? And he said, no, nah, it's rear-wheel drive. And I said, oh, it's a shame because it would be a great little car to take to Goodwood, something interesting. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, within two months, he rang me back and said, uh, you know, you said it should be four-wheel drive. It's now four-wheel drive. <laughs> so, so literally it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a tiny little car. Um, it's four-wheel drive. It's got a V6 Nissan 350 engine in the back, V6. 
turns out about 650 horsepower and literally all comes on and it's like a switch. <laughs> so, so and, and the wheels are doing, it's four-wheel drive, but I think they're just, one's driving to the right and one's driving to the left. So it's, it's look, I'm really enjoying the experience, but once again, the car, it's, it's an oddball car. It's just fits the event it's you know it's just it's interesting and um this thing's it's it's trying to tame me but i'm going to tame it before the end of the weekend (laughs) it tips its hat to world time attack i mean it's got all these overgrown wings and fairings and all sorts of uh, aerodynamic support you mentioned before the fact that it's that it's four-wheel drive but there is no there is no center diff in it is there no there's not and i think that and that's uh, you know more people i talk to they're sort of it's just probably the the best way you know that the car could be set up as far as 50 50 go 50 50 split but it takes a bit of getting used to because you never quite you just don't know where the car's going to end up and uh, as i said it's got so much power and it all comes on so quick that all of a sudden you think you're under got it under control but it wants to go to the left and the right but um um, you know, it, it's, it, it's, yeah, it just takes a bit of getting used to. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that today, if the weather clears up a little bit, we'll be able to push it quite, you know, quite hard. It's got so many noises inside, it frightens the shit out of me. <laughs> Favourite piece of road that you enjoy to drive on, maybe here in New Zealand or somewhere in Europe, or racetrack, it can be your choice. What would it be? Well, the road, well, I have to, the UK, we experience a lot of road kilometres in the UK, and there's some awesome roads there too. <laughs> Believe me, if you get off any of the A roads or B roads, you know, it's. it's um, but I tell you, you know, New Zealand, like even coming up to Ha Hay here, you know, when you're not stuck behind a camper van or another car, there's some, you know, it's, there's some awesome roads around this country, you know, wherever you go. It's just, of course, you, you know, you can't exceed the speed limit anymore to really enjoy them. If you had an unlimited budget, the, the grail car, the dream car for Paul Radisich, it doesn't have to be a current supercar or hypercar, it could be something from the past. What would be in, in the garage in, in that category? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one, Rusty. Um, unfortunately, you know... Road cars, is, is, you can pick any road car, you know, um, but you take it to the track and it sort of turns into, you know, an average car. I mean, there's a few there, some of the Ferraris and, you know, when you when you get up into the Veyron sort of aspect. But, but um, you know, that's it, a really hard one to answer. And the answer probably is the car that's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, it, you know, if I put my hand on my heart and be really honest, it's it's even coming here. It's a lot of fun, but you have more fun when you're in the fastest car. You've just gone two seconds two seconds faster than you were yesterday. Just to clarify, that's seconds, two seconds quicker. You still have that competitive drive in your mid fifties, mate, don't you? I know, and it's a worry for me. <laughs> I just said to you, put my helmet on, and and there's something in that helmet. It's it's something wrong with it. It's it's obviously too tight. It just flicks some sort of switch, which goes, "Hey, I'm 21 again. You know, let's get let's get to it." Um, but and, and you know something, it's it's a real problem for after when you finish 
com- you know competing you need to have something else to go to and, and I have to say I, I haven't found that that next thing I've tried golf and I unfortunately I, my, my running days are over and things like that but uh, and I like to I still like to keep fit but um, uh, I haven't found something that takes the it, it's the exhilaration and it's on the line and, and it's you you know uh, for me uh, hopefully I'll find something and well maybe I won't maybe maybe I'll just keep going like Ken Smith and he'll he'll set the record and I'll see if I can beat it he is still going and still winning trophies he's a remarkable driver you've cottoned on to something there that is that is a, um, a, a an important subject I think in many ways for, for competitors drivers or, or riders I mean a lot of bike guys in particular really struggle with that because there is just no obvious replacement for that exhilaration is there you, you're taking that out of your life it's been a part of your life for 20 plus years and, and there is no substitute probably 40 plus years and every, everybody's the same when you get to the stage because you, you, you started in single digits and you know, <laughs> ending in, in well if you had the you know the luxury of ending in in, in late double digits but um yeah it's it's you know and the, the bike guys are even crazier. I think. I think the car guys are, you know, are, are out there, but but the bike guys are even more. And I, I tell you, what, every bike guy I've met doesn't matter if it's doing Simon Crayford, Daryl. They're such nice guys, you know, and great company. And and but out there, but but they're just great people. And I think it's because they enjoy life. You know, they they also know how bad things are when they can turn, and uh, um, so they enjoy every moment. I think that's most important. You and I share a little complaint, and that is we get hay fever. And you have... We're sitting on a hay bale talking. And to combat this, when you were mowing on your your property, on your ride-on mower, you did something different. There is photographic evidence I have been sent of this. Just describe for my listeners how you best combat hay fever on the ride-on mower. <laughs> well, yeah, luckily, you know, it was big enough property that not everybody could see it from the road. And uh, so, it, of course, it was putting oxygen into a full-face helmet and uh, and sealing off the bottom. And um, Just to clarify, you use your ride-on mower with a full-face helmet. <laughs> is that correct? That is correct, with, a, with an oxygen tank in the back. <laughs> feeding oxygen into me so I couldn't smell a damn thing and uh, and that was the only way that I'm, I'm too tight to get someone to mow the lawn so Patricia said get somebody to mow the lawn no no I'll do it I'll do it plus of course it was a big big ride on lawnmower which I you know it's the only way I could get some satisfaction otherwise I, you know you know what hay fever's like you block up you can't breathe you, it's it's a horrible thing when you get it so um, yeah there's there's a way around everything there is a way around everything righto your proudest um, moment of your career the thing that that is at the the top of a very impressive list of things that that you've done and perhaps the toughest moment as well reflect on those well firstly getting married to Patricia and having my two beautiful daughters is top of the list way above the career stuff Um, you know as far as career goes I mean, the, the toughest... Uh, t- 
when you hop in hopping into cars for the first time it, it, it's always unknown it's a little bit like this march that I'm driving now I've, luckily I've had a few goes at it but I'm starting it takes a while but when you've got to get put it all on the line and you don't know the car you don't know what you're driving you don't know the mechanical history you put in a lot of faith in people and it is a people game you know you have to put your faith in it but um, for the scariest Probably the scare. I mean, you know, the accident's always scary. But I tell you, the, the worst one I had was I drove a Mack truck at Pukukoi back in the win 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 days when you could drive cars with jandals. Um, and uh, I, I come, you know, hairpin out, coming up over the mountain, and all of a sudden the throttle jammed. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? But the throttle stuck on this big truck. I'm not talking a a, a Mack, a big. You know, I don't know, five ton, whatever it is. It was set for racing, but it opened, and I had my foot on the brake and the clutch. To, but it, it just, you know, once it went off the track, it had a mind of its own and slammed into the. Um, I, I think about how lucky I was. It slammed into the bank and and run along the bank on its side and come to an end. And you know, here I was just sitting in a seat, funny little seat belts, and I, I, I remember when it came to an end, I thought. I'm never going to drive a truck again. I swear I'm never going to drive a truck again. I'm, that was my big warning, you know. And, I, and, and to the start, I've never driven a racing truck again. Yeah, but it was just... It, because it was so big, so heavy, the inertia, and it happened so slow, it just... It's, you know, I'm going to die. Oh, no, I'm not. Oh, I'm going to die. Oh, no, I'm not. You know, and on and on it went. So... Um, scariest it has to be at, at this you know still even after all my accidents the good part about the accidents that happened they happened really quick this one was really slow yeah. best piece of driving advice you mentioned your daughter's there a moment ago what's the driving advice that dad has <laughs> oh, yeah uh, slow down it's all I it's all I ever hear myself saying Amelia slow down <laughs> Amelia slow down oh my god are, are you a are you a good passenger no well, I'm, I have got my hand on the handbrake, and 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 for a hundred kilometres when we're driving, I'm always leaning to the right. <laughs> so I guess the answer's no on that one. But she's she's a great little driver. It's just it's, it's, this is funny. This is funny. She and, I, and I'm saying to her, slow down. And she looks in the mirror and she sees somebody catching her from behind on the road. So she speeds up. I said, "What are you doing?" She said, "The car behind's catching." <laughs> So it's going to be, a, I, I can't see her getting a full licence, to be honest, because if I'm not in the car and the instructor's there, God knows what speed she's going to be doing. But, yeah, so it's a funny little story. Determined like a dad. It's been tremendous to uh, to look back over your career. You've done some uh, phenomenal things. Congratulations on those. I know ultimately stopping was a was a very, very difficult thing to uh, to do, but it is great that you can come to an event like this and still have... Uh, still have an outlet and still enjoy some cars. Great to catch up. Thank Thanks, you, Paul. Christine. I really appreciate it. Look, brought, brought back some great memories, things I've forgotten about myself, you know. And once again, time takes care of a lot of things. When, you, when you're when you in your most competitive, you never have the time to look around you and take it in because you're always thinking about the next thing. So, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying what I did. Would I have liked to have done better? Absolutely. But I'm, I'm proud of what I've done and, and, uh, and, and I'm proud that I always gave it my best shot. Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One. Written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. 
Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcastone.com.au. Listen to all the episodes of Rusty's Garage at podcastone.com.au via the Podcast One app or find us on iTunes. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely. Listener.